check, one, check. Greetings. Welcome to Austin the Kitchen podcast. I'm David Garee, and thank you for joining me. So, uh, the title of this podcast is uh, The Recipe for Supreme Equanimity. Okay, so this is like the, the prize of yoga, equanimity. So, this, I just want to discuss some ideas about equanimity and um, kind of ranging from the most practical uh, idea, or you could almost say the most physical, uh, the most physical or material reasons why uh, equanimity is desirable. Um, and, and then also extending all the way to the farthest, uh, most profound depths of yoga that, um, like, why is this equanimity important to, to realize the, the deepest truth of, of existence? <laughs> so uh, let's just start with a small definition of um, equanimity. If you just look it up in the dictionary, yeah. and it, it, it's like it sounds, uh, equal. So there's mental calmness or composure and evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. Uh, all right, and um, so, and composure is a state of being calm or in control of oneself. And this is, um, to me, it's, it strikes at the heart of um, the iconogra iconography of yoga and the ideal yogi, like um, in all of the Indian stories, uh, the myths, and um, the depictions of the deities, like the prototypical um, Shiva meditating in his... Um, mountain retreat up in the Himalayas. He's exactly that. The, his whole demeanor is um, con communicating equanimity, composure, and evenness of temper, and uh, in control of oneself, right? And, that, and in the story of the Ramayana, the uh, Ram, he's, he's always has this equanimity like when um, he gets banned to go into the forest for 14 years unfairly, he takes it in stride and um, he doesn't react or rebel. And, um, and so you've got this, um, this ideal. And 
Um, I speak a lot about, those of you that, that know me, I speak a lot about um, effort, like that, and how, um, like I'm going to reference the Yoga Vashishta today, and it's funny because in this one text, it gives you these two very contradictory ideas of how to approach your practice and your life. Because um, on one hand, it's saying that, that self-effort is everything. That, um, and that says where failure is found, um, that, then you, failure is due to a slackness of effort. Right? And that, so whatever you um, attain in this world, it comes from your striving and your effort. Um, this is the message in the Yoga Vashishta. But um, at the, later in the text, it completely contradicts that, or appears to, where it says this. Okay, and um, I've talked about this in other podcasts, how uh, the Yoga Vashishta speaks about the nature that practice, yoga practice is the nature of a perpetual meditation on self. Okay, so whether you're standing, walking, do everything you're doing, you're meditating upon this um, eternal, unborn, undying, um, all-powerful, all-knowing uh, essence that is the thread, the sacred thread that connects all the uh, all life, and that's that's the this kind of unified aspect of a spiritual dimension of life is what you're in a perpetual meditation. Um, and so it's, and in yoga, that essence is found within you, right? It's, it has a, a big play out in the kind of universal, the entire cosmos. And then it has an individual play out within every, each person's in, uh, body. And, the, and so in, the, in this passage I'm going to read you, it's referring to the, that inner intelligence is the, uh, the kind of divine spark within each person. And so it's saying this inner intelligence should be worshipped as a perpetual meditation with whatever comes to one unsought. Okay, so whatever comes to you without your, your trying um, this is what you worship that um, self as, okay? And so it goes, it goes on. Um, and here's a little passage about um, how it talks about contemplating this, um, this Lord or secret one. And it, so, so it says, one should contemplate the Lord in the following manner. Um, she is the light illumined by the solar force as well as the lunar force. Um, hers is the intelligence that eternally lies hidden in all material substances. She is the extrovert awareness that flows through the bodily avenues into the external world. She is the prana that moves in one's face, uh, the, the senses, nose, uh, and such. She transforms contacts of the senses into meaningful experiences. She rides the chariot composed of prana and apana vayus. She dwells in the secret cave of one's heart. 
and she is the knower of the knowable and the doer of all actions, the experiencer of all experiences, the thinker of all thoughts. So it is she who knows all parts or limbs thoroughly and who is recognized by being and non-being and who illuminates all experiences. <laughs> okay, so, so this is your perpetual meditation upon this. And, um, and you're, you're, you're to do it in your, the food for your meditation is, your, is this body that you have, and this very body, your body, your senses, your thoughts, and even your circumstances, so, uh, your, your history and your relationships and everything that adds up to um, who you are and what you are encountering is the stuff that you uh, use to conduct this perpetual meditation on self. Okay, and so it says, um, see this is, uh, it says one who contemplates in this manner is, is equanimity itself. Okay, so one that contemplates this constantly throughout Whatever is happening to one is equanimity um, itself. The, and their behavior is equanimous, guided by equal vision, and that the person has reached the state of natural goodness and inner purity and is beautiful in every aspect of their being. And so, because they worship the Lord, who is the intelligence that perfect pervades your entire body. And then listen to this. It says, the worship is performed day and night perpetually with objects that are effortlessly obtained. Okay? With objects that are effortlessly obtained and, um, and offered to the Lord with a mind firmly established in equanimity and in the right spirit. Okay, and so, and then again, they hammer it one more time. So the Lord should be worshipped with everything that is obtained without effort. One should never make the least effort to attain that which one does not possess. You hear that? Let's just get that again. One sh the Lord should be worshipped with everything that is obtained without effort. One should never make the least effort to attain that which one does not possess. Okay, so this is an amazing, uh, amazingly empowering uh, teaching. I've been working with it, and um, it, uh, it's, and like I said, it, it, in this, what I just read to you, it's showing you the greatest context that basically. You're turning everything over to this um, great source of all life and putting all your trust and faith in that. And, um, and, in, and part of that trust and faith is um, trusting that everything that you have, who, you've got what you need right now to um, realize that to align yourself with that highest 
principle of life and um, and remain in an equanimity. And um, and it, it goes further than this. Um, so because it it brings it down into uh, your everyday life. Okay, so it's it goes further. So it says the Lord should be worshipped by means of all the enjoyments that the body enjoys through eating, drinking, being with one's consort, and such other pleasures. So the Lord should be worshipped with, and get this. Okay, so everything that you do, all the pleasures that are, are material pleasures that you, you have in your life. Okay, and uh, but then it goes further. The Lord should be worshipped with the illnesses one experiences, and with every sort of unhappiness or suffering one experiences. Okay, with the illnesses one experiences, and every sort of unhappiness or suffering that you experience. So the Lord should be worshipped with all of one's activities, including life and death and all of one's dreams. The Lord should be worshipped with one's poverty and prosperity, uh, with the even, the Lord should be worshipped with um, fights and quarrels, as well as the sports and other pastimes, um, even with the manifestations of emotions, of attraction and aversion. So the Lord should be adored with the noble qualities of a pious heart, uh, friendship, compassion, joy, and indifference. So, and it goes further. Uh, the Lord should be worshipped with all kinds of pleasures that are granted to one unsought, whether those pleasures are sanctioned in the scriptures or forbidden by them. The, the Lord should be worshipped with those that are regarded as desirable and others that are regarded as undesirable, with those that are considered appropriate and others that are considered inappropriate. For this worship, one should abandon what is lost and one should accept and receive what has been obtained without effort. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this and just take it in. And um, so one of the things uh, about um, equanimity, we can say, is that um, in Sanskrit there's a few words like um, samastitihi and it's also like samana vayu. So that word sama is um, and even samadhi is um, that means uh, the word sama is um, equal or same alike and um, and it even goes into um, fairness evenness and um, impartiality okay and um, and then there's another word for it of uh, madhya um, a madhyama which means the middle and and so you can see by these, uh, so it's saying, it started off saying like all the pleasures that we experience, we um, kind of worship this inner intelligence or appreciate the self, or, uh, remember this self. But then even with one's illnesses and with one's unhappiness, with one's quarrels, with um, all the challenges we face. And so it's, so, so it's showing you this evenness that you, it, when you get uh, good fortune uh, and a lot of pleasures or prosperity, 
then you you worship self. And then when you get poverty and um, inauspicious fortune and um, suffering and obstacles, you're there, you, you equally worship self. Okay, and so this is the trick, you see, and this is why yoga is so hard to practice, right? Is to, um, because our whole, uh, it's almost instinctual, but it's certainly educational, that we're educated to try to be happy and to try to prosper, and that the, and those things are not only seen as desirable, they're marks of, um, of success and of um, happiness, right? So, and that the opposite, when we find ourselves in pain or uh, down or um, losing, failing, uh, then we'll tend to associate that with being a bad human, being a bad person, not um, succeeding in life. And you see, and so this is really throwing uh, that whole idea out, basically. Because So it's saying that the successful person, the happy, the truly happy person, is the one that um, doesn't get all um, wildly overjoyed and um, pumped up when things are going well, nor get... Uh, all depressed or uh, feeling so lost or abandoned or um, challenged or uh, just way down in the depths when things don't go well, right? So that evenness throughout everything you experience is the prize. <laughs> and um, and. Uh, and it takes it far because it's saying that um, whatever comes to you without effort, see, and so, so, and it's in another part of the text. It's saying that self-effort is everything. So you have to kind of be able to embrace both of those ideas in the same, uh, in, at once. Like the fact that you're going to strive your hardest to in your practice to um, do the asanas to the best of your ability and um, work with the ones that are that challenge you to get better right and develop and um, and really take the approach that that your your effort accounts for everything right so where, where failure occurs that it can be seen that slackness of effort has been there but then on the other hand it's telling you to be equal all the time and that you, you never you always have exactly what you need to um, conduct your worship of self okay and so so you don't have to make an effort to get something you don't have and and if you take it right to your practice level uh, right like the we all have our endowments our strengths and weaknesses and we'll we tend to covet what others have. We get very um, bummed out if we have tight hips or tight legs or tight backs or 
um, or don't or lack strength in um, certain ways, and then we can't do certain poses, and um, and so this is a very welcome uh, perspective to come from that. Whatever you can't do, you don't need. <laughs> right? And it's such an excellent balance to, to, um, to try your hardest to improve and to become more flexible in your forward bends, back bends, and get stronger and all these things. But at the same time, you just know that what you have is what you need. And that the universe provides for you. And uh, this is a very beautiful, um, important, not just beautiful, important um, remembrance to live in. Okay? Because there's, I'm going to read you a few things now. And um, to kind of support what I'm talking about. So one, uh, one thing is this quote from Charles Bukowski that I find to be very uh, important. And basically it says, um, it's, part, it's a second half of a poem that he wrote. And um, I, I picked it up at the, the statement, we, we are afraid. Okay, so the fear is so strong in us. And then he says, our educational system tells us that we can all be big-ass winners. Huh. See, that's how we're educated, is that all you have to do is try hard enough, and you'll be a big-ass winner, right? And that everybody should be that. And, um, and anything less is failure or something. Okay, so he says, our, our educational system tells us that we all can be big-ass winners. Um, it hasn't told us about the gutters or the suicides or the terror of one person aching in one place alone, untouched, unspoken to, watering a plant. <laughs> okay, so it, listen to that. It hasn't told us about the gutters or the suicides or the terror of one person aching in one place alone. Okay? Untouched, unspoken to, watering a plant. And this, see, this all of us have to deal with. Okay? This is part of our existence. And for some reason, we want to cover that up. We want to, like, just focus on... Um, Becoming a big ass winner, right? Or um, envying the person that is a big ass winner, and then feeling like you're nobody if you don't make it to that. And um, and so and so, I love the idea though that if you embrace equanimity, okay, if you keep your composure, whether circumstances are. Um, auspicious or inauspicious, pleasurable or painful, um, prosperous or um, leading to poverty, well then you've got, you've 
you've got an answer to it, right? So that your only project in life isn't just to become a big-ass winner, right? It's to negotiate the whole spectrum of uh, being human, which is exactly what your life is for, everyone's life, right? It's not even the ideal that everyone be a big-ass winner, right? It's the ideal that everyone... Um, enter the troughs and the, the peaks and the vales, right? And, um, and negotiate those as skillfully and um, with a humanity, with um, this, uh, these excellent qualities of, um, like what it said, so the Lord should be adored with the noble qualities of a pious heart, uh, friendship, compassion, joy, and indifference. And um, so it's cool because they uh, going to read to you a couple other things here. The um, one so this equanimity too is. Um, it's different than the word vairagya. Okay, so, because you can think of those as being the same, is that vairagya is dispassion or non-attachment and could be equanimity. But see, vairagya has this real dark flavor. It's like dislike and aversion. And, um, so it's indifference, but it's like um, disgust it even goes to, right? So you, so you really be, reject the material world. And, um, and Santosha, on the other hand, is, um, you could, is, is actually closer to the spirit of the um, equanimity because, it's, so Santosha is delight or pleasure or joy, and, and this key word is satisfaction. So you're content. And, um, and so in the word like that um, Sama, Part of it, it means um, benevolence. Okay, so it's, you're impartial, but you're also like cheerful with what comes to you, whether it's auspicious or inauspicious. Like you're, you, you keep this even demeanor that's slanted towards benevolence. <sighs> or it's interesting though, because if you explore the idea of the middle, you could say that vairagya is kind of the almost the dark end of the spectrum of um, impartiality. It's like you're indifferent to the point of just knowing that things are temporary. That like so. So this is part of the the core of why equanimity is so important in yoga is because of the word uh, anicca, impermanence. See that everything's constantly changing. And, and like Bob Dylan's song, right? That who, whoever was first will be last. And, right? So that things are constantly in flux. And this is why it makes for such misery to become attached to, uh, to pleasure. That's called raga. It's one of the afflictions. Or to create hatred or strong aversion towards um, which that's called dvesha, towards what is unpleasant. <clears throat> okay, and so 
So vairagya, there's a certain uh, dislike of almost every experience or because, because it's going to change and it's not going to stay the same. And so the, those drives that we have towards a reaction are to be kind of um, not liked. And then, but then on the other hand, with Santosha, you get to more easygoing attitude. It's more delight and enjoyment in whatever comes because it's going to pass. And so there's a certain benevolence because you are wise enough to know that Everything is morphing and shifting, um, everything material. Um, and also, this is a perfect moment to come back to that perpetual meditation on self. Because one of the, the, the things about self that's so um, distinguishing from uh, the little self is this, um, it's, the big self is eternal. Okay, so it's not a it's not something that's caught in a time and space. It's uh, it's beyond time and space. So it's beyond the mind, beyond the senses, and it um, it's unborn and undying. So it's oh, it always was, is now, always will be, and so this so that, so when you're holding this kind of um, the, the Dakshina Murti Stotra uh, has a nice little um, set of things that I want to present to you. That of uh, this kind of the perpetual meditation is coming to a meta perspective on um, who you are and what is happening here, and so it it says um, all products such as pots rest in. Um, their causes, such as clay, right? So there's clay, and then there's everything that um, is made from clay. And, and then it says that this universe, as, um, as one with... So the universe, as one with the light, must rest in the Supreme Lord. And then it says, just as the mirror is dimmed by a stain um, attaching to it, so knowledge is veiled by avidya, and thereby creatures are deluded. Okay, and so, so the, partly you're, we create equanimity, um, and we value equanimity because these this passing show of thoughts that's constantly taking place within us and carrying us from, uh, you know, pleasure thinking we're successful and awesome and then swinging back to pain and um, deprivation and loneliness and thinking that we're terrible and failures okay so we so that this is um, this is like the stain on the mirror um, that's obscuring the knowledge that we're actually none of those um, passing thoughts whether they're good or bad Right? And then um, last, it, it, so it's giving three, three images. One is all products such as pots rest in um, their causes such as clay. So the universe as one with the light must rest in the Supreme Lord. And then just as the mirror is dimmed by a stain 
um, attaching to it, so knowledge is veiled by a video, and thereby creatures are deluded. And then the third one is, so as the akasha, so the space within a jar is marked off from the infinite um, space by the form of the jar, so you get that? The space within a jar is marked off from the infinite space that's beyond that um, jar by the form of the jar. So is the distinction between the, the little self and the big self um, caused by having a body. <laughs> okay. And um, so I have this uh, Rumi poem that I want to share with you that's so amazing um, on this and uh, relating to this theme that we're on. And so it says that tending, it's the, the title of this poem is Tending to Shops. And it says, um, don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. Um, there are wild beasts in every cave. So if you live with, and so you got that? Don't run around for a hole to hide in. There's wild beasts in every cave. And then, if you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. All right, and then, uh, so the only real rest comes when you're alone with God. Okay, that's the only real rest. It comes when you're alone with God. And then it says, live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an address here. Okay, live in the nowhere that you came from. And that's this self, this bigger container for uh, your whole life. And so, uh, so live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an address here. And that's why you see things in two ways. Okay, this is so key. Um, sometimes you look at a person and see a cynical snake. And someone else, but, but someone else sees a joyful lover. And you're both right. See, sometimes you look and, at a person and see a cynical snake where someone else sees a joyful lover. And you're both right. Everyone is half and half, like the black and white ox. So Joseph looked ugly to his brothers and most handsome to his father. So, so you have eyes that's, that see from that nowhere. So you have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high and how low. So you own two shops and you run back and forth. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller. Checkmate this way, checkmate that. Okay, keep open to the shop where you're not selling fish hooks everywhere. You are, you are the free swimming fish. Hmm. I love that. It's this constantly careening between opposites that, that we do and chasing after things. And then, 
ending up with such suffering. And when all we have to do is settle into what we have right now and go into it as, as worship. Um, now I want to add in one more really curious uh, element to the whole to the whole thing here, um, and that is with um, James Hillman, a wonderful um, Jungian uh, psychologist, and um, he wrote a beautiful book called the Blue, a Blue Fire, or it's a it's actually an anthology of his writings. It's called a Blue Fire, and um, it's really talking about the value of darkness, right? And so it's another way of kind of, um, it's, it goes even further than, um, or gives you even more reason to feel a sense of equanimity when things aren't going well, when you are sick or an illness is there or obstacles and suffering and um, so what it says is just starts right off, and um, in this book it's about the soul, um, and he, he makes this distinction, this wonderful distinction between like spirit, which is um, kind of what we focus on in yoga, where you're kind of ascending to the heights of um, of self, and then in to James Hillman, their spirit is the kind of pinnacle, and down in the valley is the soul, kind of in the the blue area and the darkness and um, in the challenge states that we are in. And yet both aspects, the soul and the spirit, are uh, nourishing our most profound um, selves. Okay, and so he says, the soul sees by means of affliction. <laughs> it's like, and that word is klesha uh, in yoga, right? So just straight out says it. The soul sees by means of affliction. So the, and so and then it's, he talks about um, artists and those who are most dependent upon the mag- imagination for their work, uh, poets, painters, and um, fan- they fantasists um, have not wanted their pathologue pathologizing degraded into the quote unconscious and subjected to clinical literalism. Okay, so the, he's, talking, he's talking in quite technical um, psychology language, but you can still get the message of this. So just stay with me here. Okay, so and then it's saying that um, the unconscious and so, so the, so it's basically saying that musicians, poets, that they, they reject the ideas of therapy because they don't want, they want to use their darkness, right? And, it, and so it says it, the crazy, um, the crazy artist, the daft poet, the mad professor are neither romantic cliches nor anti-bourgeoisie postures. So they're metaphors for the intimate relation between pathologizing and imagination. Okay, so get this, it's coming. Pathologizing processes are a source of imaginative work and the work provides a container for the pathologizing process. Okay, so, and pathologizing process means when we are hurting, 
Okay, our darkness, our anger, our frustration, our loneliness, all that um, angst that we that we have when we are not uh, big ass winners. That um, that these pathologizing processes are a source of imaginative work, and the work. So the imaginative work provides a container for the when we're hurting. Okay, and it says the two are inextricably interwoven in the work of um, Sophocles and um, Webster, Shakespeare, Goa, Picasso, Swift, uh, so many, right? Um, and then it says this, the wound and the eye are one and the same. Yes, the wound and the eye. So from the psyche's point of view, the psyche, so the, this kind of, the, your mind, your consciousness, from its point of view, pathology and insight are not opposites. Okay? As if when you, you, as if we hurt because we have no insight, and when we gain insight, we'll no longer hurt. So get that. See? It's as if, this is how we treat things. We are hurt because we have no insight, and when we gain insight, we'll no longer hurt. And he says, no, pathologizing is in itself a way of seeing, okay? So when hurting in itself is a way of seeing. And so we have to um, not go into a, this instinctual need to reject our pain, which is we immediately want to get out of it and we want to complain and um, change and uh, wish it away and whine and feel pity and all kinds of things um, rather than uh, feeling this equanimity, this evenness and um, being able to enter into it um, with this attitude of santosha. Okay, and so it's saying that pathologizing in itself is a way of seeing the eye of the complex gives the peculiar twist called psychological insight. Okay, and then to lastly, just one other thing that um, I want to read you one Aesop, Aesop's um, fable. And because the, so there's this whole thing of not rejecting our pain that um, is necessary for equanimity, and then there's the not getting all overly attached to becoming a big-ass winner or staying a big-ass winner, right? And so this one's called The Man and His Goose. And so a man had a goose, and it was a very remarkable goose because every day it would lay a golden egg. And the man wasn't... But every day it would lay a golden egg, right? But the man wasn't satisfied with having one golden egg a day. He and so he decides to cut the goose open and take all her treasure at once. <laughs> right? So he kills the goose, opened her up, and found nothing at all. And it served him right. Right? And so it says, don't try to grab everything. You may lose what you have. Okay, and then last, um, the... Um, so in the Yoga Sutras, in the third chapter... Uh, 
it's the vibhuti pada. And um, so vibhuti, it could, the synonym for that is siddhi. So it's about um, powers. And it really goes into um, doing these exercises where you conduct a sanyama, a very strong meditation on certain um, themes, uh, certain, certain practice themes. And then it always lists off the benefits or the siddhis that you get from, from doing those um, meditations. And then it reminds you on Sutra 337, it says that these siddhis, so any siddhis or powers that you gain from your practice um, are there, if, if they stay in their externalized states, right? If you're just into it, you, you're doing so great because everything's going well and you're, you're attached to the power that you're gaining then these are obstacles in reference to samadhi or absorption. Okay, they become instead of helping you, um, becomes a hindrance to your growth and your path and your ability to be absorbed in the good things in your life. <sighs> okay. So, just to close this out, equanimity, this is from the Yoga Vashishta, okay? So, equanimity is sweetness itself. <laughs> and this sweetness is beyond the senses and the mind. Whatever is touched by that equanimity instantly becomes sweet whatever its description or definition may be. So that alone is regarded as worship, which is performed when one is in a state of equanimity, like that of space, when the mind has become utterly quiescent, without the least movement of thought, when there is effortless absence of perversity. So, I hope you gained something out of that and saw that this uh, idea of the supreme recipe for equanimity. Namaste.